0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome, everyone, to episode 87 of Some Like It Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, you might have thought we'd be out of new content to review by now, but we're dialing things back to early March one more time to review the Ben Affleck-starring, Gavin O'Connor-directed basketball drama, The Way Back. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, this week's episode is going to be heavily basketball-themed, as we'll also be giving a brief review of HBO's documentary about Christian Dawkins and the NCAA basketball pay-for-play FBI investigation in part two. So I have to ask, are you missing March Madness in particular this week?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, I am. Uh, you know, Joe Lenardi, the bracketologist at ESPN, has been doing a simulated like tournament. I, he's, he like starts the games at the same time and everything, and he tweets out what's going on and all this stuff. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is just his own invention and stuff, but... Um so following along that has been kind of with that has been kind of bittersweet especially you know because the final four would have been last night um and so yeah i mean it's disappointing it's my favorite sporting event every year i look forward to it like i look forward to a holiday but um y- you know we have a couple of basketball related things to discuss here so you know haven't been completely devoid of of basketball action and, and CBS sports network has been showing some classic March madness games as well that, uh, have, you know, wet my appetite about as much as you know, you can with an old game like that. But yeah, well, no, I'm glad we they can. have Adam Sandler
0: reacting to the old game is the real question.
1: <laughs> that, that would now that would get my attention even more, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm glad we had these two projects with, you know, similar, similar, uh, focusing on the same sport, at least, um, to, to look at this week. And, and so we could, you know, get our basketball fixed for not quite March, but, you know, tournaments still would have been going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously HBO can't predict that all this is going to be happening and canceling the basketball tournament, but they knew what weekend to the final four was and they knew when they would be releasing this documentary to, to generate some sort of conversation around it. I don't know how many people have actually been watching it. I feel like it might be a decent number just because of the particular subject. Um, I think I I don't actually see that many people talking about this that much. I don't know if it actually has gotten that much conversation yet. It's still the first couple of days after it was released. Uh, it doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. The movie doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, which I think wow. maybe says says a lot. But anyway, we'll get to that in, in part two. So let's get ahead, go ahead and kick off this episode that will forever be known as the basketball episode uh, by talking about The Way Back. Directed by the same director, Gavin O'Connor, as films such as Miracle and The Warrior, The Way Back stars Ben Affleck as Jack Cunningham, a former high school basketball standout turned alcoholic construction worker who is now separated from his wife, Angela, played by Janina Gavankar. After the current coach suffers a heart attack, Jack receives a call from his former Catholic high school bishop to return to the court he once dominated to coach a mostly lackluster group of boys, for the remainder of their season. All the while his family and his soon to be ex-wife are concerned about his progressing dependence on alcohol as a mechanism for coping with a past trauma that culminated with his separation from his wife. Scott, I'll stop there to avoid any spoilers, but would love to hear what your expectations were for the way back as Gavin O'Connor's last outing with Ben Affleck, although not sports related, the accountant received mixed at best reviews. And then whether those expectations you had were met, not met, or exceeded.
1: Yeah, no, I actually never saw the account. And I guess it wasn't in my brain that that was Gavin O'Connor as well. But yeah, Uh, no, I mean, I I looked at this, I came into this looking at it like, you know, another Gavin O'Connor sports movie, right? Like Miracle and Warrior, which you mentioned, are formulaic to a T, absolutely. I don't think even the people, uh, even even Ben Bateman, whose favorite film of all time is Warrior. uh, I, I don't think he will disagree with that, but... Um, nevertheless, I think that a lot of critics or especially audiences would agree that whatever it is about Gavin O'Connor's direction, he somehow has a knack for uh, making this formulaic material inspired not not necessarily by really deviating from the formula too much or anything, but maybe it's just the the sincerity with which he directs these uh, movies or maybe the passion that he has for the sports that are that are happening in these these movies that, elevate them to something that while formulaic right while predictable while you might be able to see every step that they're going especially i mean miracle is a true story obviously but you know the, 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 you still walk away having been inspired and feeling all of the things that you should feel after this type of sports movie rather than thinking well that was just kind of boring retread of you know 10 other movies that we've seen and so that was kind of what i expected to get with the way back right like obviously this movie has heavy vo- hoosiers vibes heavy hoosiers vibes um, I joked to my dad as we were watching this that this was the backstory of Dennis Hopper's character in Hoosiers. Um, of course, Dennis Hopper plays the alcoholic assistant coach in Hoosiers, and uh, Ben Affleck here—I mean, people have even jokingly called it Boosiers uh, because he plays the that you know heavily alcoholic um, for, former star who is hired to coach the team, as you said, Scott. Um, and you know, the movie starts out and it is pure formula like you expect, and. You know, while I, I wasn't completely devoid of feeling or emotion during during these scenes, during the first hour, hour to hour and a half of, or so of the movie, when it is kind of just going along those familiar beats, um, I, I can't say that I was feeling all that I think I was supposed to be feeling and maybe that I've even felt during other Gavin O'Connor sports movies. Um, and I was, there There were moments when I felt that the the plot and the, the repetitiveness of, uh, you know, this this type of story uh, started to wear on me and tire me out a little little bit. And then the movie takes, a, a, I think, an interesting turn in the last third and the last half 20 to 30 minutes um, and goes in a direction that maybe I wasn't quite expecting. Or I wasn't expecting how deeply it would veer left um, so, sort of in this final act. Um, and, and I think it is a little bit different from uh, Ga- those other Gavin O'Connor sports movies in terms of where the movie ends up. Um, and I found that interesting because I think in a way, and we'll get into it when we talk about spoilers, but in a way I think it acts as maybe a, a rebuff to some of the, the, the tried and true inspirational sports format. I think maybe it's critiquing that a little bit with uh, the direction that the movie takes down the final third Um but nevertheless, I just felt like even though it was an interesting direction, the movie did not have enough time to spend on that direction. And ultimately that ending, which was the most interesting part of the movie, which was something more like you haven't maybe seen before in these types of movies, um, was too rushed. And the ending was just abrupt. Um, and you know, it, it's not that I necessarily was like, oh, the movie should have gone on for another 20 minutes or something. I just think that the, the pacing maybe was off and um the 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 fact that it waited so long to get to this final arc and, and the arc that we're supposed to believe that ben affleck goes through just in this this final act happens way too quickly uh at least for my liking and so i think that i would recommend the movie i think that there's there's enough in it to recommend particularly ben affleck's performance i think is really really strong here one of his best in his career probably um and, you know, like I said, I, I, there were moments in the inspirational sports story that that got to me. And, and you know, I, I did appreciate trying to do something new um, down, down the final act. I just think that the movie kind of falls apart a little bit uh, as it goes further along. And the part that, you know, you've seen before, you've seen before. And, uh, you know, some people I think will, will be fine with that. I, I mean, the people who respond most heavily to these O'Connor sports movies, I don't think will be too disappointed with that first part um but i wish that the promise of the second second or the final act uh had really been followed through on
0: yeah i think that there's a lot of similarities in what the movie wants to do in its final act something like a star is born even so you you think about in that film where bradley cooper's character goes to rehab and and they're like basically the entire final act of the film uh is this you know he's spending this time in rehab he's recovering I you know it, there isn't any suicide in this movie. I'll be really clear. If you've seen a Star is Born, you know how that ends. There's no suicide in, in in this film, but it feels like the last five minutes of this movie wants to do that. Like it wants to do that, but then it does what a Star is Born does in like half an hour to forty five minutes in about five minutes, and it feels totally rushed. I completely agree with that assessment. You know, I found the first half to two thirds of the film to be a really good sports drama. Again, you you said it, like you've seen it probably 15 different times and you've seen it probably three or four times just from Gavin O'Connor alone, but it still works. Like I think that it works because there are some really interesting characters. I think some of the, the high school students, although again, like many parts of the film, a little bit formulaic, I think there are still some interesting characters and some interesting stories that could have been told with those people. There's some pretty funny recurring jokes with some of them as well and, and then Ben Affleck is absolutely on fire in this film I think he really has probably exercised his demons that might have been following him like quite literally since he also went to rehab and struggled with alcoholism uh, exercised his demons with this film since everything to do with you know the DCEU and everything that came with the weight of having to play a character like Batman. And it really feels like this movie you know puts a stake in the ground and says, hey, you know what I'm putting that behind me and I'm moving forward. For better or for worse, I'm moving forward past that phase in my career, and and if this is the indication that he's going to give uh, the kind of performances he's going to be giving for the rest of his career, I mean it's a pretty good thing because I think that this is one of his best performances. I thought he was pretty great in Argo, and this is easily his greatest uh, performance for me since Argo, um, maybe even before that if I sat and thought about it a little bit more because he plays a tortured soul. In this film, and and maybe in many ways that's where he feel like he feels like he's been in his life for the last few years. But either way, he's able to channel that really well on screen and create what was a really believable character that just disappointingly and maybe, maybe even more than maybe even infuriatingly isn't given its due to actually close out the arc in a satisfying way, like you described in my letterbox review. I talked about you know giving this film an extra half star because Ben Affleck is absolutely incredible but then wanting to to then take that half star away because it's just so infuriatingly formulaic. And it's like Gavin O'Connor is afraid to do something different with the movie, even though he like, he really wants to, like he really wants to do something more, but doesn't either doesn't believe in himself or Warner brothers doesn't believe in him to actually add something more to it. Uh, Whether it's because the movie was going to be too long or it was just not going to hit the right audience or really feel like it's going to appeal to the right audience. I don't know. Uh, That's maybe a, a question that will never be answered but it it really felt like it missed a beat after being perfectly on pace for the first two-thirds of the film for me and that was really disappointing Uh, that was really a a really disappointing piece of it i think that if i had to group movies into different columns i think that this would be the top of movies that i found extremely disappointing even though they were still i'd say good movies good not great movies um and and that's kind of where i sit on the on the whole thing i don't know if you want to add anything else before we talk about ben affleck more specifically
1: Let's just get into it. Yeah, I think, I think I've think i aired all of my general impressions for now. Most of my other thoughts will probably involve spoilers. So.
0: Yeah, dig into Ben Affleck then. I know I I shared a little bit more about my thoughts on him. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think with the strength of the performance comes from how raw it is and, and the the fact that you could sense he is drawing on his own personal experiences, um, you know, as having, having gone to rehab, I mean, the scenes where he's just like uh, – Pounding beer after beer in his apartment and like rehearsing the speech that he is going to give to the uh, the bishop when he when he uh, or the priest when he declines his offer and then of course he doesn't decline his offer to be the basketball coach but those scenes I felt like were really effective and. And then the you know, the in-game scenes, I think he's really good in those too. You, you could sense him drawing on his experience as a Boston sports fan, right? When he's storming down the line and swearing at the the yeah. refs like profusely. Um, he's, he's really chilling that drunk
0: like, performance he gave on is it was it a, is it with Bill with Bill Simmons on his oh, kind of, yeah, I, have yeah. you ever seen that video where he's talking have, about yeah. free Brady? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, no, no, no. It's exactly like that. I mean, you you could just see him in a bar
1: somewhere in Boston, like, watching a Pats game and, like, having these same sort of reactions. So, uh, I I think that that's, you know, I, I think the performances are always more, uh, effective when they feel so authentic, right? Like, that's why somebody, I think, like, Daniel Day-Lewis or someone goes so far to get, like, to be method with every single performance and to try and literally put themselves in the shoes of the character that they are playing, um, because you can sit as a viewer, even as a casual viewer, you can sense that that authenticity that honesty to the performance when you feel like, hey this person has been through some stuff like what the character is going through here. Um, and, and it's just kind of that intangible thing that I think that uh, that Ben Affleck captures really well here and I, I think it is definitely the highlight of the movie some people I, I saw some people comparing it to, saying that this is uh this is ben's manchester by the sea like his brother had manchester by the sea and ben has this movie in terms of uh maybe what the character goes through and i think that yes i agree i think the performances by ben in this movie and casey affleck on in that movie are are absolutely on the same level manchester by the sea far superior film but um, I, I think that if you if you have a comparison point, if you want to have a comparison point to the performance, I think that his brother's performance in Manchester by the Sea is is a good comparison point, just because the depths of the grief that they have to experience in this movie, not just right, not just uh, his grief in terms of like his alcohol abuse and all of that, but what we learn about his family life and his past with Janina Gavankar's character, um, and and eventually how that affects him when something else happens down the the third act, I think I believed every, every action really that um, that Ben Affleck's character took, you you know, until maybe that final act where it's not really his fault. I think he's just not given the space. It's like there's
0: 15 minutes of scenes that were just completely removed from this film.
1: Yeah. He's not given the space to, to convince us of the change that we are supposed to believe in that final act. But I mean, it's it's a fantastic performance, and I think in a normal year, uh, which is a, a year when movies were consistently coming out, he might be in the Oscar conversation. I think maybe the early release date probably will, would have hurt this movie. Again, we don't know what the Oscar conversation is going to look like next year, if there will be one at all, but um, it, it's one of the standout performances from the few movies that we've seen this year.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I think that this this has to be if you if you pause the year right now, which, you know, if you take a look at the release schedule, uh, the world is pausing in terms of film is going to be pausing for a few months. kind of really starting after next week, unless something dramatically changes with Trolls World Tour being the last new movie that's going to be coming out for a while, Uh, at, at least in terms of what would be typical theatrical releases. And I think Ben Affleck is at the top of the list for me in terms of you know lead lead acting lead actor performances. I think if you were cutting his Oscar uh, clip for to, to show at the ceremony next year, I think you you'd cut the scene where he is you know by himself in his apartment pounding beers and practicing that speech because honestly that was like a super. I mean, for me that that might be my favorite scene in terms of his performance of the film because it's just it's mesmerizing in this really grotesque way to watch. You know this guy essentially go through an entire full refrigerator of beer um, and then you know cutting through all these different attempts to practice him saying no about this offer to coach the basketball team and then of course, waking up the next day and realizing it just cuts to him at basketball practice that he's taken the he's taken the job. And I think that that was some really great uh, directing and really great acting right there. I think that's probably the best uh, scene of the film uh, because, again, to your point, him not really, him being Ben Affleck, not getting the chance to really bring this character all the way home in in the final few bits of the movie. I, I don't really know if I have much more to add, just because I think Affleck's performance is is so strong, and I, I don't even think I have any any complaints really. I think that he plays everything really well, and he's able to channel some some real you know some if not many real life experiences that he's had between the alcoholism, but also his sports fandom and and reacting like you were saying to these calls that he disagrees with to say the least (laughs) Uh, when they, when they happen on the court. So might as well switch gears here and talk about some of the supporting cast. I think a lot of this film does rely on Ben Affleck at the central performance, but there is also Gina Goodon like we've been talking about, who plays his ex-wife, Angela. There's Al Madrigal who plays Dan, who's the assistant coach, probably the only other significant supporting role. There's obviously all the members of the basketball team whose names I'm, I'm not super familiar with slash may not even have been in movies before. And then, Really, the last one, I think, is his sister, Beth, who's Michaela Watkins. And, and that's really it for the supporting cast, Scott. Anyone in particular who stands out for you?
1: I mean, the only person that I was going to mention, I think, was Al Magical, who plays the assistant coach. I think he strikes a good balance uh, of this kind of conflicted character who sees the impact that, that Jack, that Ben Affleck's character is having on these students and not just their play on the court, but in their lives as well. Um, and, you know, wants that to continue, but also understands the certain aspects of, of Jack's character that are a detriment to, um, to, to the development of, of the boys as, as young men and as players. Um, and I, I thought he struck that, like I said, I think he struck that balance well. And I think he definitely portrays the, the inner turmoil that he has uh, when ultimately he does have to make a choice. Um, towards the end of the movie about you know what what is Jack's future with this team what does what does his future need to be Um, and again I found the choice that he made believable based on the character that we understood um, you know throughout the movie
0: yeah I I agree I like this character a lot I like this performance like all the characters i feel like i, I kind of wanted more towards the end i mean of course you do have the culmination of this character's arc which is what you were alluding to and some decisions that he makes towards the end of the film i still would have liked a little bit more as much as i did believe what happened i still feel like there should have been more there it should have been not necessarily resolution for the dynamic between these two characters or the relationship between these two characters but just more resolution from the character independent almost it, it felt like there was something more that was deserved and maybe you get that based on what happens after that sort of turning point in in the movie that kind of midpoint of the third act when uh, certain things happen. But for me, again, like a lot of parts felt like there should be a little bit more, but I liked Al Madrigal's performance. I don't think I've really seen him in anything before. I'm not super. I think he's a
1: comedian mostly.
0: Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I I thought that he was, uh, I I thought that I recognized him, but hadn't seen him in a movie, which would make sense if he was a comedian, but yeah, no good performance. I liked Janina Gavankar as well. But again, I just think this movie relies so heavily on Ben Affleck that it's really hard to talk about any other particular performance standing out. And I'd be really surprised if we get around to award season and any other name is really dropped for anything related to. Oh, yeah. Awards. No way, No Yeah, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Scott. So, diving into the plot, I mean, we've really tiptoed around a lot of spoilers that start happening, kind of coming about halfway through the film. And I'd like to take the gloves off now, talk about those a little bit more, because I think there's quite a lot to, to, to digest, uh, both in terms of. Where you were describing as the, the turning point of the film away from what you might consider a typical Gavin O'Connor uh, sports movie. But then also of course, in in the final act as it relates to spoilers with the more traditional plot line, uh, again, just one more spoiler run before we start talking about it. And yeah, so I think that the two big spoilers that we'll want to talk about one by one, the first, if you think about the traditional storyline here of the, of the basketball narrative is the fact that, you know, they're able to mount this comeback over the course of the season, get into the playoffs, but because of his alcoholism and because of something else that we're gonna talk about here in a second is happening at the same time. He isn't really able to control that. It seems like for a good portion of the film, he, he maybe has stopped drinking as much, uh, especially once they start becoming a successful basketball team. It, it appears that he's choosing to drink less, but then there's this emotional trigger in his personal life that causes him to sort of go over the edge and, and ends up coming to a Saturday morning practice, or I assume Saturday morning practice, uh, while he was still drunk from the night before. And that causes Al Madrigal's character Dan to report this to the bishop of the school and ultimately sees him fired and he isn't able to coach the team in the playoffs as they make a run to, to the state championship. I can't remember if that, I assumed actually, we don't know if they win or not. It's, I think it's important. You implied just see like win. their
1: first game in the playoffs. Yeah.
0: Oh, I assume that was the finals actually. And then you hear like the voiceover of the commentary in the finals, but that actually might just have been the first game.
1: Oh, okay. They might have said finals. I thought it was the first game, but you might be wrong. No, I don't think they said it at all. I
0: think I just made an assumption. Um, But anyway, they're playing in the finals, and he's listening to them at the end of the movie. But, Scott, that's kind of sort of the main arc narrative. And I I guess I didn't really see that coming. I didn't see him not being able to coach in the playoffs coming. But when you interweave that with the other spoiler, that is the fact that we learn at some point, you know, about halfway, two-thirds of the way through the movie, that this trauma that has kind of gone unmentioned although of course you can feel it sitting in the background for most of the film, at least in the relationship between him and his family and him and his soon to be ex-wife is the fact that his son had died from cancer several years prior uh, when he was like nine or 10 years old. And he has not been able to recover from that emotionally, mentally. And so he, he of course resorts to alcoholism and his relationship with his wife deteriorated to the point that they became separated and then ultimately what re-triggers this is the fact that one of their family friends' son, his cancer has relapsed and that's they get that news. We don't know whether he survives the relapse or not, but we know that he has relapsed, and it's not good. And so he has this trigger, which kind of, again, like I was saying, interweaves itself with the basketball narrative and leads to him losing his job as the coach. Scott, what did you think of these, of these two plot developments late in the film? And then we'll eventually talk about the actual finale that we get.
1: Yeah, no, I... I so as far as the basketball plot goes, like I said, I think it is, you know, it's formulaic, right. You know where it's going. You have these familiar elements. You have like the, the rival coach, right. Who's really, yeah. you know, sort of rude and aggressive to, um, to, to Ben Affleck and the team and the fight breaks out and all of this stuff. You have like the one kid who has never been told that he's good or anything. And he has, you know, the rough family life until, and Ben Affleck is the first person to come in and like really inspire this kid and, you know, make him the best player or whatever. Um, And, you know, just some other familiar beats, right. That you you've seen in these types of sports movies before, but you know, like, like I said, I think they still work to an extent. Like, I mean, anyone who's a sports fan like me, you're going to get caught up in some of these moments. You're going to get caught up in that, you know, final game when they play the rival team again to make it into the playoffs, the the last shot, even though you know exactly what's going to happen. Like I can watch, you know, I can watch the Levante Turner shots against Kentucky uh, seventy five times, and I still like, get am affected by it, even though I know every time the shot's going in. And, and so, like you know, no matter how many of these types of scenes you've seen before, if you if you like sports, if you're an inspirational, if you love a good inspirational story, you're gonna feel something during these scenes. I just think that um as a you know, as a quote unquote, film critic, um I wanted more. I wanted something new from those scenes, I guess, for me to really be like, yeah, this movie's amazing. I I absolutely want to recommend this, you know, classic sports movie. I think, I mean, I've always said this, but the 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 movies, the sports movies that resonate with me the most, even the really good inspirational sports story, are are not those inspirational sports stories. It's the, you know, movies that kind of get get behind what it means to be an athlete or what it means to to participate in sports, movies like Hoop Dreams and Moneyball and stuff like that that are or outside the box are the ones that resonate with me. But I think the sports stuff more or less works just because Gavin O'Connor knows what he's doing here, and I like the moment where the the, the basketball story kind of ends. Right, it, it ends after this game. It it almost like it's almost a, like a satire of like the end of these sports movies. You have like the inspirational music, you have Ben Affleck like look off into the distance, you know, with like a smile on his face, like oh triumphant, I've done it. Almost like this is where the movie would end if it was going to be a normal inspirational sports movie. But they fade to black and then they come back and there's, you know, the, the other 30 minutes that we've been talking about here. Um, and so that's what when I say that the movie is kind of a rejoinder to, um, to, the, to the inspirational sports formula. That's kind of what I mean, right? It gets to this point where you would expect the story to end, the inspirational sports story to end. And then it goes off in a different direction where Ben Affleck's problems resurface, right? And it, it becomes clear. He's not going to just be able to easily overcome the the problems that he has, the trauma of losing a child, the alcohol abuse that um, he, he, uh, he has, like, this is not some movie where he coaches the basketball team. The kids inspire him sports cures all or whatever. And, and that's it. You know, it, we're all happy go lucky. That's not really how real life works in a lot of cases. And I think that's what the movie is getting at here by you know, seeing that, that Ben Affleck, he, all of his problems resurface, where all it takes is this one moment where he sees his friend's child going through the same thing that that his child went through. Um, and that just flips the switch right back in his head. And, it, it, you know, it's not something that um, he, you know, that he can overcome easily. And, and, you know, you do get that scene in the office where they, they fire him. And, you know, as much as you are rooting for for Ben Affleck to overcome his problems, like – when he's there begging to keep his job, it's like, yeah, you know, I wish he would could keep his job. But like, I understand why he's not right. Like he's not the type of person who should be around these kids. Like it's forecasted well throughout the movie. I think like the 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 swearing uh, subplot, I actually think I mean, I say subplot, but it's like a theme through the movie that I actually think worked uh, where, you know, he's he's continuously told by the priest and uh, the bishop. You got to stop swearing. Right. Like we're a yeah. Catholic school. Yeah, um,
0: that's the priest the bishop is the headmaster of the school
1: yeah one of yeah. them yeah sorry yeah. um the priest right yeah you got to stop swearing you know we're a catholic school this is not the type of thing we want going on in front of our fans or our boys and ben affleck just doesn't do it right like he just keeps uh you know on with the same behavior and i think that's almost forecasting what we see with his um or, or you know ultimately when when the story comes to a head right like with the alcohol abuse, he's been told so many times, like the Al Magical finds the beer can in the office and says, look, you got to stop this. He doesn't stop, right? He he gets, you know, he falls back off the wagon. And it's kind of that, look, you know, we want you to, to keep coaching the team, but at the same time, like, you've had your chance to make things right and you haven't done it, which is how things go in real life, right? When you're, when you're an addict, when you've gone through this deep trauma, you can't just kick it like that. And so that is what I think the movie I, I think that those ideas are are good for this type of movie. I like that that was the direction that the movie went in. Again, it didn't fully flesh them out, unfortunately. But it gets some points for trying.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. The saying it gets points for trying, I, I agree. Because for all intents and purposes, they could have ended this. Like, this movie could have been an hour and a half. It would have been a formulaic sports film. And, and we go on with our lives. We have good things to say about Ben Affleck's performance, etc., Uh, But it it does try to do something different, so you don't want to completely knock it for not following through 100% on trying that different thing. But there is something there, right? There is something there in terms around that sort of emotional trauma that he goes through before the movie starts with the death of his child, getting re-triggered by his friend going through essentially the same thing that he went through two years before and re-triggering him, falling off the wagon – and then trying to lie about it and not being honest with the people who care about you and, and who support you. And ultimately, you know, that being the reason why he's not able to do this thing that he found, uh, you know, he found a passion for, he found meaning for his life in, and losing that to some extent and having to, of course, in the last few minutes of the film, renegotiate the path uh, to find meaning for it, for his life. Cause he didn't have the basketball team or he didn't have the kids. One of the things that I think, that I find always find frustrating with sort of like addict stories is, is just seeing how easy it would have been to navigate the situation if they were just honest about what was going on. If he shows up to, you know, if he wakes up late after, you know, the, the day after he gets super drunk because he's re retraumatized by his friend going through the same thing. If he just calls in, you know, if he just skips practice altogether, calls later and says, Hey, you know, I had this really traumatic thing happen in my life yesterday. And I just couldn't do it this morning. I'm sorry, I, I missed practice. He's not going to get fired for that. Like he's not going to get fired for that. You're you're being honest about something that happened, and and you're being you know vulnerable to the people around you who care about you. Because as, as difficult as it is to watch Dan talk a, you know talk to the bishop, and ultimately have to see you know Ben Affleck's character Jack get you know fired from the job, uh, th- that's a different story if he's just you know if he's just candid with him about it. And I feel I found that. Element of it pretty moving, and, and it was really just the things just a shift now towards again the final five to ten minutes of the movie is really what comes after that happens that I found the most frustrating part of the film, and that you you get this incredibly rushed and sped conclusion to the film where he essentially goes to rehab. Um, honestly, it's kind of it's kind of blurry to me just because of how fast everything happened. Like he goes to rehab, he like has a conversation with his ex-wife about how he's like coming to terms with everything. And that's like the end of the movie. I'm sure I'm le- leading out something because obviously the last shot in the film is him listening to like what sounds like the radio broadcast of, of the, of the basket of the playoff game that, you know, his team is the, you know, I Bishop Hayes is at the name of the school. Bishop Hayes is, is playing against him in, in the playoff, in the, in the state playoff tournament. And he's like shooting hoops. Cause he talks about earlier on in the film, how he hadn't touched a basketball since since high school because he wanted to stick it to his father who only cared about him when his basketball talent was discovered, that's why he turned down his college scholarship to Kansas to play basketball. Um, so again, there feels just like a lot of really rushed elements at the end of that film. Some that had been introduced earlier on coming back, which I always appreciate, but again, doesn't really feel like it's, it's navigated that well. Um, and, and it's definitely not put together that well in my book. And again, to me, I, I left the film and ended the film just being really frustrated that, that was the end of end of the movie when it had, a, like it felt like it had a lot of potential to go 15, 20 minutes longer. And I'm not kidding, like being a four, four and a half star movie.
1: Yeah. And I think that I, I think I do like the place that it ends up, right. That scene of him yeah. shooting basketball at the end. I think that that works because of what we're talking about and the direction that the movie takes of, you know, sports isn't going to cure all or whatever. Like he, these problems are are always going to be there. He's going to have to work harder to overcome uh, what he's been through. And and so it feels right that, right. That we don't get the traditional inspirational sports ending, right? Like even, even if you think about it in, in, in the context of O'Connor's other sports movies, right? Like at the end of Miracle USA, the USA wins, you know, they beat the Soviet Union they win the gold medal uh, the next day at the end of warrior, the brothers, they reconcile, they say, Oh, I, I, you know, I love you or whatever, even after all they've been through or whatever. This isn't that sort of big, like, cathartic moment at the end of this movie to see him shooting basketball. It's a little small victory, right? Like, it's, it's a little small victory that he has been able to shoot basketball again. And that maybe this is, you know, a sign of something more optimistic to come. But, you know, you're going to have to get a lot more of these little moments, these little victories for him to overcome this big problem. And so that image, I think, works as an ending. It's just how we get there that doesn't work with just these like kind of disjointed scenes, you know, him with his family, him with his wife, really just sort of short protracted, you know, scenes where where they, they have conversation, right. They have some meaningful conversations, but I don't, I don't understand necessarily how he gets from point A where he's being arrested and, you know, having fallen back off the wagon to point B where he's shooting basketball at the end of the movie in 20 minutes or so. I just think that that change happens way too quickly.
0: Yeah, because literally right until just now when you mentioned him getting arrested, which – does he even get arrested? I don't even know. I think he does, but they just drop all the – they just choose not to press charges again. Right, because this culminates after him getting fired where he has this, like, drunken night at the bar where he, like, is attempting to go back to this woman that he's with's house, and he walks into the wrong house, has this altercation with this guy who's calling the police and ends up in the hospital – because he like falls off a I guess a set of stairs or a deck or whatever and rolls down this hill and bangs his head open it, it's just, I completely had forgotten about that scene until just now which tells you again like how blurred and rushed the last 15 20 minutes of the movie are because to think about that happens and all these like seemingly like, come to Jesus moments happen with his family and his wife uh everything it's just, it's just so rushed but you're right I like the yeah. like the last image is really nice though I just wish that I had understood how we got there a little bit more yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Well, Scott, I don't know if there's really too much else to talk about with this one. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and say, what's your favorite scene from the way back?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll have like a little recurring like joke that I like in the movie, which involves the, uh, Kenny on the team, I think is uh, one of the few moments of humor in the movie. He's this like sort of like hot shot kid or he thinks he's a hot shot. Yeah. Um, he's yeah, he's sure. the shooter on the team. Yeah. yeah, he's the shooter on the team, right? Like um and so there's this recurring gag about how he's with a different girl before every game, you know, telling her what she wants to hear all this stuff. Um and eventually it, it comes around to bite him, right? And and the uh the girls get revenge on him in this in this really kind of humorous scene. So, um I I thought that that was, you know, a nice moment of levity in what can be a really downer of a movie a lot of times.
0: Yeah, no, it definitely can be a bit of a downer Sometimes as well. I think for me, it's going to be kind of one of the one of the shots towards the end of the film, actually, uh, a little bit of a payoff from a relatively minor character story arc. But, you know, right when the team is about to go out for their for their playoff game, actually, in the state championships, you have Brandon, who is the point guard of the team, who is this really talented person who is very introverted at the start of the movie. Uh, you learn a little bit about or actually quite a bit about his backstory and his family life as his mother either died or left them. I can't remember. I think died. Um, and her, you know, he has two little brothers, and, and his dad is not super supportive of his basketball career because his dad tried to pursue a career in basketball to you know go to college, et cetera, and it didn't pay off for him very much. And he's just very disillusioned of the notion that using basketball as your ticket out of a tough life is, is not the right way to go. And at the end of the movie, right before they run out onto the court, he looks up into the stands and sees his, bas- his dad walking down the stairs with those two brothers into the seat to watch them play. And yeah, something about that just really got me. Uh, not that it wasn't ultimately predictable if you think about the storyline, but something about it still emotionally worked for me with the journey that you see Brandon go on uh, over the course of the- probably the most significant story arc that you see on the team, even more so than Marcus or or any of the other players.
1: Yeah, it's a nice moment. I just like, again, I don't know that I believed the dad's arc to get him to the game. Like the, the one scene where he really, that he has with Ben Affleck where Ben Affleck comes to where he works and stuff, he's pretty kind of just standoffish and like, look, I don't have anything to say to you. Basketball is not the career that my son, um, you know, needs to be pursuing, whatever. I I just didn't see that Ben Affleck – I didn't see what Ben Affleck did in that scene that really, like, convinced him so much that he would be willing to come to the playoff game. But it is a nice moment, you're right
0: yeah i think for me it was more around the fact like because that happened i think right before the final game against memorial so during yeah. the regular season and i guess i just kind of assumed i kind of worked assumed that the fact that his son made the game winning shot you know i guess kind of yeah changed my, there, that's an assumption again like the the movie doesn't show you that change and mm-hmm. any sort of scene in, in that household that that shows you that his father's now proud of him or something like that you don't you don't get any of that but that that was kind of the logic that i was using But, yeah, it's a nice moment regardless of whether it makes sense how it it got there. cool, All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. What are you going to give the way back? Again, it's a solid film.
1: It has a lot of the elements which you will expect uh, from this type of movie, and I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. I think Gavin O'Connor does know how to direct this stuff and give it some oomph. But it had the potential to be more, and it just doesn't follow through on that potential. So
0: 6.7. Yeah, I'm coming out roughly the same as you, just a slightly, a couple, couple point uh, decimal points lower to 6.5. It's a, it's a good, not great film. Uh, I think there's a lot to like about it if you like these kind of sports movies. But for me, there's also a lot to be frustrated about at the end of the film. Um, and ultimately, I'm not sure. I'm glad that they pursued this different direction with the film. But I'm, I wonder if I would have been more positive on it if, if they hadn't and, and kind of missed missed a beat with it with the end it probably be roughly the same but i'm i'm glad at least qualitatively i'm glad that they tried something. Yeah. Of. all right scott that should do it for our discussion of the way back let's take a short break and when we return we'll be sticking with the basketball theme to discuss hbo's recently released documentary the scheme we'll be right back Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, we're now going to be embarking on less of a review and more of a discussion, I'd say, about a documentary released last week by HBO called The Scheme. Directed by Pat Condalise, The Scheme is essentially a two-hour interview of Christian Dawkins, the convicted, quote-unquote, mastermind behind the NCAA college basketball pay-for-play bribery scandal. That all came to a head in 2017. The scheme tells the story of the early life of Dawkins, who grew up in one of the most basketball-rich towns and high schools in the whole country, Saginaw, Michigan. His father was a standout high school basketball coach, and his late younger brother seemed destined for basketball greatness before his untimely death at the hands of a rare heart condition. Christian was always more interested in the business side of basketball, at least as as the movie shows. And by the age of 17, he'd already landed an Under Armour shoe deal for his AAU team and then skipped out on college to go into the agency business, becoming the right-hand man of one of the most notable basketball agents in the world, Andy Miller. For all of Dawkins' seeming savant-like skills at basketball agency, he soon found himself, however, unknowingly roped into an FBI sting operation, aimed at rooting out coaches taking bribes in exchange for passing players to agents. The rest of the scheme tells Dawkins' side of the story for the first time and lays out his defense in the public forum, taking aim primarily at the FBI and maybe most importantly the NCAA for their amateurism clause that, that shows that, pl- that players who play in the NCAA lose their eligibility if they've ever taken money, for the sport of basketball before. So Scott, this isn't going to flow like a normal review. So I'd like to ask kind of two questions to get us started. First, you know, where you'd like the discussion to start, but also what you thought of Christian Dawkins' side of the story.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very entertaining documentary, I will say. If, if for, you know, the first thing I will say in terms of like reviewing the movie itself, I think that even people who aren't interested in basketball, maybe, or this scandal We'll find something to like here because it's a crime story, first of all, and then uh, I mean, particularly in the first hour, hour and fifteen or so, is this really sort of interesting crime story about uh, you know undercover FBI agents and res- you know recorded conversations and uh, sting operations and all of this stuff that I think anyone who who loves a good crime story uh, will will sink their teeth into. And then I think at, towards the end it becomes something different and and you know it becomes more of a critique of the NCAA. And yeah, you, you you mentioned it there that I think that you know the movie is very much Christian Dawkins' story. And I think that that is both a benefit and a detriment to the movie because I think that the movie is entertaining because it, it does tell Dawkins' story and he was so intimately involved with so much of this. And he's a strong personality, right? He's a strong character throughout the documentary. But at the same time, I think that from from a as much as I enjoyed watching it as much as I found the story wild absolutely wild and interesting, um, I think that from a filmmaking standpoint the movie is too one sided like it, it really is like it 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 uh, it doesn't explore I think some of the complexities of Christian Dawkins enough like he's obviously a very difficult uh, to to nail down person um, and I think that he had there's a line towards the end of the movie that I found really interesting where he says. I think that any coach who isn't paying players is basically an a-hole or something like that. Like he, he just like, he basically says, look, if you really care about your players or whatever, then you will be paying them. You'll take and care I was of like, them. Yeah. Really? Uh, like, really? Like, because like everything that we've seen in the movie, right. Is that players are, are getting very negatively impacted by all of this and they could, you know, potentially lose their scholarship, lose years of eligibility, whatever, because of their involvement in this sort of thing. And so when Christian Dawkins says something like that, it's like, yeah, I understand the sentiment of we should be paying players. But while it's still against the rules, right, like if you're paying players, you're putting these students in a very, you know, treacherous position of possibly losing their scholarship. I don't think that that's really a sign of caring about the the students is, you know, getting them involved in something that is against the rules. Obviously, it's the way that it goes nowadays. Okay, so he he disagrees with the manner about which the scheme goes down, right? The, the idea of paying the coaches who then, you know, give the money to the players. He doesn't like that. But, right, he still wants to pay the players. He still wants to sort of induce them to then further down the line, hopefully take him on as an agent, which is still against the rules, right? So he's still, like, whatever he's doing is not on, what he wants to be doing is not on the up and up. Maybe he doesn't want to be doing it exactly like well, it's, the, not on the up up, it's not on the up and up with the NCAA.
0: But yeah, I mean, the whole perspective is that it's not against the law to be playing. No, absolutely.
1: Yes, and no. Like, I thought one thing that's interesting in the movie is how they talk about the way that they sort of bend the law to try to kind of make it against the law, right? The way that they frame this, what he's doing as like fraudulent because you are um, causing someone who is. Um, who has a scholarship to lose that scholarship to be put in a position where they could lose that scholarship. And so that is defrauding the university or whatever. Like, so they they kind of like bend the law of fraud in order to actually be able to bring charges, right? Because Dawkins himself is like, yeah, it's not against the law to break an NCAA rule, which is true, but it is against the law to to commit fraud. And that's the way that they sort of frame this whole thing so that they can get all of these people.
0: Do you buy that?
1: No, I, I, I don't think I do. I think that it, it it is just a way right it is just a way to get these people for doing something that probably should be the rule right it probably should be the rule that that student athletes are getting paid and they lay out a, a very convincing case as to why I don't think you know I, I don't think you you really I, I think the facts are very much on their side like I think that it's pretty easy to make a convincing case that players should be paid and I think within the next 10-15
0: years we will see payers, players begin to be paid um yeah. It's pretty wild how had- how much and how accepted by society this whole idea of I mean I mean they yeah. talk about it a little bit not they, they actually talked about it less than I thought they would around amateurism but the fact that that we just accept as a society that colleges and universities and the NCAA can exploit these incredible athletes pay them nothing like I mean like sure okay they're getting the scholarship uh, but like I mean it's that's marginal like that's being paid by Scott like donations from other player from other people and things like that and and boosters et cetera. And the fact that they make literally billions of dollars off of these athletes is pretty remarkable that we just accept that and and then think ill of, you know, these coaches. Like, think about, like, all these coaches who lost their jobs. Like, I mean, Rick Pitino is, for lots of different reasons, <laughs> lost his job. But... Yeah,
1: Rick Pitino does not need our <laughs> sympathy. Let's put it that way.
0: Sure, sure. I don't think that. I mean, is Sean Miller still a coach of Arizona? I don't actually even know. I, I don't think many of these coaches yeah, deserve – yeah, I don't think many of these coaches deserve – too much sympathy, Definitely especially not. someone like Will Wade of No Fee Super Disorder, American Gangster. Yeah, <laughs> um, but the idea that that these you know people are doing things that are like defrauding universities from being able to exploit their their assets, because uh, essentially what they're saying is that because because you can defraud a university by paying a player and thereby losing thereby losing their eligibility for the thing they're receiving a scholarship for, the idea that that's defrauding. A, a school also means that the players are essentially property of the school which seems a little bit weird um t- to me but that's not explored as much and I'm, i know that there are alternative perspectives on that because it's you could argue that's a service rather than an, like than a good but it doesn't matter yeah. i don't wanna, i don't dive too deep into that but i wonder what your thoughts are on, on some of those subjects
1: yeah no no i i agree i mean i think like the whole idea right that that somebody could go from high like you could pay a high school athlete as yeah. Somebody can go from high school straight to the NBA and that's fine. It's just the fact that they choose to pursue college yeah. that they can't get paid. Right. Which is something like we should be encouraging them to, to, you know, go, go play college basketball, to be a part of the NCAA and participate in, you know, get, get a college education as much as college, as much as these athletes actually do. Um, and you know, play, play college basketball, participate in this part of life. But I think that, um, And obviously that is the rule right now. You can't go straight from high school to the NBA anymore. But I think, I mean, for me, that is the answer to to this problem. If if the NCAA doesn't want to pay players, which, again, they probably should, then let people go straight from the high school to the NBA, right? Let the people who actually want to play college basketball, who want to get a college education, go to college. But let the people who are only interested in getting to the NBA and making that money You know, the the players like that go to Duke and Kentucky every year and stay for one year, let them go straight to the NBA. Like, I I just don't understand what the downside of that is. Like, Kobe Bryant did it, right? Like, uh, a ton of other players did it. Uh, And, and, yeah, so I
0: actually respond to that. I think the downside of that would be that they are underdeveloped. There are exceptions, of course, like LeBron and Kobe are exceptions to that. Those are two players uh, in in a wide spot. Like, these – I think it's going to be incentivizing – pretty strongly people to go you know to go pro for the money because a lot of these people come from family situations where they are in desperate need of that money to support their family to be able to provide for their siblings to be able to provide for their parents who you know provided them these opportunities to play basketball and stuff and so i just think that it's not you're not necessarily asking people to choose between college basketball and money you're asking people to choose between you know, college basketball and being able to provide for their families. And that, and that's right. like – that feels wrong to me. That's like – that's not the decision you want them to be making because you want them to be making, do you want to play college basketball or do you want to just go pro? But that's not really the decision that a lot of these these people would end up really – end up really be making.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's a good point. I, I just think that, you know, only the really good players are probably going to be the ones who who decide to go pro. I think everyone else is is probably going to, you know – because because only a few, only a select few players actually like get good NBA contracts. Will be you know consistent NBA players from from the very beginning. I mean, you see all these people declaring for the draft. Like everybody who's anybody will declare for the draft, but that's just keeping their options open, right? Like most of them will ultimately come back and yeah. and play another get, year in college.
0: Yeah, they get to do that once, right? That, that's because the they're just
1: testing the water, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues involved there. But yeah, I think like. The movies again. The movies' case against the NCAA is is convincing, and I think they're taking aim at the right people. I think the movie is is pretty damning in the way that it looks at the coaches too, right? Regardless of of what uh, Dawkins' comments are about, oh, I think coaches should be paying players, or whatever. I think it's a bunch of hooey. But but the like, I think the movie does go after Rick Pitino and uh, Will Wade and Sean Miller, and, and particularly the fact that they weren't. Involved in the the legal proceedings at all, right? They they went after a Christian Dawkins. I mean, I think that's the most effective part of the story, right? Is not saying, oh, Christian Dawkins is like a great person, and uh, you know he wants the best for these college athletes or whatever. No, that Christian Dawkins is the wrong person to be taking the fall for what he's taking the fall for, right? That that he is. He is, he is not really the the person who has the most at fault here. Like the FBI basically entrapped him into doing this yeah. to some extent. And, and also you have the coaches who are, you know, the, the ones who are, are very intimately participating in this, who are actually, you know, exchanging the money themselves to the players. And there's all these bad recordings of them. Like there's this smoking gun evidence. Like you could not want any better evidence against Will Wade. And it hasn't been pursued. The NCAA has completely swept it over the under the rug the schools haven't done anything like these people are still coaching college basketball and i think that is that is a joke like that that is the type of thing that as a college basketball fan infuriates me right because there is no incentive to play by the rules then right if you're not going to punish the people who don't play by the rules i mean again the rules are 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 what they are like they probably shouldn't be the rules, but they are. And if you are, aren't going to punish people for not playing by the rules, then no one's going to do it, right? And people who actually are on the up-and-up, coaches who are on the up-and-up, like maybe uh, Roy Williams or, or Tom Izzo, somebody who's been doing it for a long time and maybe has has, has been on the up-and-up for the most part. I mean, they probably haven't. Let's be real me. Um, <laughs> Izzo but, was in a couple you know, of those photographs. Putting uh, on our me. rose-colored glasses for yeah. a second. Um like again there's no incentive to play by the rules and that that is kind of disappointing and another thing that um in terms of the film then this is me putting on my law student hat a little bit i think that the way it portrays the some of the le- things that happen during the legal proceedings are a little is a little irresponsible like for example there's this whole thing about how the fbi agents Got, in, got, like, cited for misconduct because they were gambling with the FBI money in Las Vegas when they went there with Dawkins, and they make a big deal out of the fact that, well, this evidence never got to come in in court. That evidence would never come in in court. Like, that, that is just completely irrelevant to the question of, you know, is Christian Dawkins involved in defrauding these schools or whatever? Who cares whether the FBI was—I mean, I understand it makes them look bad, right? Like, and, and yes, like, the FBI agents should have been cited for misconduct— what they did was wrong. These people are, are probably not good people, but that doesn't have anything to do with whether Christian Dawkins is guilty of fraud or not. And like them trying to them portraying like that evidence, not coming in as like some kind of gross miscarriage of justice did kind of be like, I mean, come on guys. Like you can admit yeah. like the, the legal reality here that that something like this is probably going to be a stretch to get in in this trial. And so I just felt like they went a little too far in some circumstances to sort of, um, make christian dawkins look like a good person which he probably isn't but what he is right is the fall guy for something that you know other people should have gone down for rather than him i mean these other what's the what's the uh guy's name who who informed on him right that guy got probation right and he he freaking stole money from all these people yeah marty marty blazer yeah like that it was absurd right that that dawkins has to go to prison maybe for all of this stuff and Marty Blazer got probation because, just because he he organized this whole thing. Like he basically set the FBI up to entrap, all, you know, Christian Dawkins. It's crazy. Like the, the story is crazy.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that I don't know enough about the the legal side of things as it relates to entrapment. But it really did feel like, at least from my understanding of what entrapment is, that that should qualify for entrapment because there, there. I think he tell- at part of it, at least part of it qualifies as entrapment? Yeah. Like the whole bribery element of it feels like that's entrapment because the part of it that it Uh, is a really hard time arguing is the fact that he stole money from these people and just pocketed the cash. Um, That that definitely feels like that's a a little bit less entrapment and more just like, dude, you probably shouldn't have stolen that money. Um, They were just idiots. Like, honestly, like that was one of the shocking things is how, because,
1: because that's the thing right about the whole entrapment thing is like Christian Dawkins over and over again, uh, you know, is like, I don't want to do this. Like, this isn't the right way to do it. Paying coaches is not the right way to go. Like, you know, says over and over again that he is not going to commit the crime. I mean, the, the violation of the rules slash crime that they want him to commit. Yeah. Um, and, and eventually, you know, decides to do it just because um, he can keep the money. At the same time, I think it also makes Christian Dawkins look pretty dumb, right? That he couldn't figure out what was going on, right? Like, he had all of the pieces there that, the fbi agent wow he's acting really weird about this right like he's he seems like he really wants the coaches to be paid and all this stuff even though that's not doesn't make any common sense like dude can't you put two and two together like it's right there in front of you like he's he's probably not on your side ultimately and he could he couldn't figure it out so it's it's again it's a, it's a crazy story if you like yeah. true crime stuff it doesn't matter whether you're a sports fan or not like i think you're going to find because I was just kind of enthralled watching a lot of this.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those things where he was—he's so—he's pa- like, just so clearly passionate about doing what he what he loves and what he wants to. do. Although now he's in like the music business, I don't even know. Like the end of the film was was kind of wild. That was so wild. You know
1: what that reminded me of? That reminded me of the Firefest documentary at the end. Yeah. How Billy McFarlane like then goes out and does like this other scheme or whatever while he's out on parole or, or on probation or, or whatever it is while he's awaiting his jail time. And yeah. I, that that totally reminded me, I was like,
0: wait a minute, what? Like, he's a rapper now? No, not even that. He just, he, he got his own record label. Yeah. Like, after, it was just wild. That part is wild and very underexplored at the end of the film. But one of the things that, for me, I just found so interesting and so frustrating, and probably the thing that sets the doc back the most, is just how how unapologetically this film is like a puff piece for Christian Dawkins. Like the yeah, idea exactly. that at the end of the film, like I assume it's Pat Condoleez's voice that you hear interviewing him. I don't know. Whoever is interviewing him, you hear him say, Oh, like, do you think he did anything wrong? And it, it just like lingers on him for like a solid five to 10 seconds. as He thinks about the question. He's like, yes and no. And I'm just like, no, dude, you stole money from people. <laughs> like, yeah, you didn't. You weren't like Marty Blazer, but like you took the, you, like you took this person's money, lied to him about what you were doing with it, and pocketed it because you were just so and, passionate about this thing, and, and you knew that you knew how to do it the right way, and you were still going to provide something to someone, but ultimately, like, you were lying to them and you were taking their money.
1: And like, as much as he talks a big game about like, look, I believe payers should be played and all this for welfare and all the like. That's not why he was paying the players. I don't I don't believe that's why he was paying the players ultimately or why he wanted to pay the players. It was so that he could get business, right? Like yeah. that is his in that is his end goal is getting these people to to be his clients at his sports agency. So he's he's just as opportunistic as everyone else.
0: Yeah, I mean to be fair, I think he's opportunistic from that perspective. But I do get the sense that he probably cares about the players. Like I think he cares about the players more extent. than a lot of the other agents, like at least the way Andy Miller was portrayed. Uh, at least it felt like that no, but no, yeah he's so opportunistic absolutely yeah he, he he absolutely does it's just he
1: doesn't do himself any favors if that if he wants to come off as like taking the moral high ground when he is also like yeah i'm doing this cuz i want my business and like repeatedly says that on phone calls and stuff like that i will say my favorite line though when he's talking about being in jail and the fact that el chapo was on the floor above him and he goes no disrespect to el chapo and what he's got going on <laughs> I was like, "Oh my gosh, this guy!"
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, he—I I think that he probably shouldn't have been convicted for the bribery, but I think no. he's dead to rights on the wire fraud. I don't think there's any way he gets he gets out of that one uh, just because of the the nature of everything that he was doing. And I think I agree with your sentiment. It's like, he may or may not be a good guy. I don't know. It doesn't. It, it seems like he's definitely of the mindset that he shouldn't have to worry too much about rules as long as he gets to do the things that he wants to do that he just like, feels are right things to do. And if that makes you a bad guy, then he's a bad guy, I guess. Like I don't really have a judgment either way on that. But he certainly, to your point, Scott, it seems like he's the fall guy for all of this thing when there are people a lot more important, a lot more relevant for him than him involved in these schemes that the FBI wanted to take down, it seemed like, that the NCAA just did not allow to happen. I mean, you talk about the hundreds of hours of other phone calls. Like, yeah, you hear a phone call from Sean Miller or a couple phone calls with Sean Miller, a couple phone calls from Will – actually, just one phone call from Will Wade. We've
1: not, and we've known about that call for for a whole year. Right? Like, people have known yeah. about Will Wade and the strong-ass offer and all of that for all this time.
0: Yeah, and, and yet, should...
1: Javante Smart, who was the player that he paid, was balling out this season for LSU. Well,
0: it doesn't matter because no tournament, so it will never be remembered. But Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a It's it's an interesting point. I think it's, you know, it just shows that the NCAA is just as crooked as all of these people in terms of wanting to secure their financial uh, stability. And they, you know, take that for what it's worth. If you think that's fine, that's, that's cool. Like that's whatever, but it doesn't seem above board uh, overall. And, and maybe the rules should be a bit different. Maybe, maybe, maybe they shouldn't be. Uh, I have my opinions about that in terms of paying players. I think, that is something that should be allowed because ultimately the mark like that market would stabilize you know it, it's not like the the best teams aren't getting the best players already anyway and so that all yeah. equals out over time
1: yeah i mean i think college basketball is one of those sports where even if you are getting the best players it doesn't necessarily translate to immediate success right like we've seen that with with the Kentuckys of the world like they ever since they've done the the One and done. They've only won one championship, right? Like it's not always the Dukes, Kentucky's, um, the Kansases that are in the Final Four. It's Gonzagas and Virginias and Michigan States and the the schools where the players will stay for three and four years. Like I think there's enough parity in college basketball to where it's not going to create uh, an unfair product if you do start doing this.
0: Yeah, because I also don't think colleges will be playing millions of dollars. Like they they like the colleges still won't be paying NBA salaries. Two, no. two players, so they'll, they'll, you'll still have relatively the same breakdown. Like you'll have the best college players, the people who who do attend Kentucky, you know, the few who attend Duke, etc., that are going to be going after one year, just because they're going to be in the lottery uh, of the NBA draft and they're going to be guaranteed multi-million dollar contracts, even if they only play in the D League. Uh, so it, it's I don't know if the the paying the players change the landscape that much, and that's partially because they're already getting paid. So it's like it's not like it's going to change that much. Yeah, I mean it's it's happening. All right, Scott. I think that should do it for episode eighty-seven of Some Like It Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today?
1: Um, I don't honestly. I, I right, wish that it. there was more to talk about, but you know, in this quarantine, it uh, it, the it, having topics and and things to converse with my parents about after all this time, it's it's getting thin. Let's just say we're we're getting to the bottom of the list when we've spent so much time together.
0: Okay. How about this? Then we're talking about this more in the podcast next week when we when we do a news section. But what do you think about this this uh, festival from Amazon that they're going to do online?
1: Yeah. No. This is cool. I mean, it's it's uh it's South by Southwest is what it is basically. Who is pairing with Amazon and saying. That they're going to release a lot of the, the title, I mean, it's up to the filmmakers, uh, ultimately, I think, whether their titles will go on there. But hopefully the filmmakers will, will be willing to do this, but uh, have sort of a virtual South by Southwest where they're going to stream all of these movies one time only. Right. You don't you don't have to have a prime membership. You just have to have an Amazon account um, and you can watch all of these movies streaming wise. Um, you know, however many movies ultimately are, are agreed to go go up there. Um, as if you're at a film festival. I mean, I think that's really cool. I hope that, again, I hope that filmmakers will take part. There was some stuff from South by Southwest that I was interested in seeing. And like, you know, we don't get to go to film festivals or anything like that. So even getting to simulate the experience like in our own homes, I think would be would be kind of fun.
0: Yeah, it would be pretty cool. I'm a little skeptical that any filmmaker of a, of a movie that doesn't have distribution uh, purchased already would do this just because of pirating. I'd be really surprised if you see a movie without a distributor um and then also a movie with the distributor distributor might not want their movie to get pirated before they release it so i'm curious how many films will actually latch onto this of any significance but i'm hopeful because you're absolutely right it would be a really cool experience again we'll mention that again next week on the podcast when we do a proper news section because we didn't have the time today because we did want to talk about the scheme but scott where can people find you on twitter at scurvy and i can be found at shelton 2013 over on twitter where you can also find our podcast at at Pods. You can also subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash pods. Check out all the different reward tiers over there. And even if you can only contribute at the $1 level, we would really appreciate that. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash pods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well, subscribed and shared all that jazz so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And we continue to entertain some people during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic that rages on. All right. I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week. Yes. With more new content. But until then for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.